for the week of October 24th, 2013. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media, coming to you from Washington, D.C., as always. Uh, with me are my two wonderful co-hosts. At the other end of Washington is the always tactful Catherine Hamilton, energy policy expert and founder of 38 North Solutions. What's the good word, Catherine? How are you? Hey, it's another beautiful week in Washington, D.C. Uh, the weather's just starting to get cooler, but I bet it's not as cool as where Jigger is right now. That's right. Jigger is in Chicago at the Solar Power International Conference. Um, he is an energy futurist, founder of Sun Edison, and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, what's happening at SPI? You're actually on the conference floor. I am on the conference floor, and standing right across from me is the great Tor Solar Fred Valenza, the uh, the big uh, solar tweeter and uh, so, PR and communication specialist. The marketing guru, that's right. How's the show? The show's great. I got to say that the energy here is really, really high. People see this as a growing industry that's going to keep growing, not uh, not the one that was blighted by Solyndra a few years ago. Excellent. So we, if you hear a little bit of talking in the background, that's just because Jigger's on the show floor. We are partially live uh, from a public event. So keep that in mind. Um, and between the three of us, we've got decades of cumulative experience with energy issues, and we are adding another deep well of experience this week. Joining us is our special guest, Shirley Neff, a senior advisor at the Energy Information Administration, and she is also joining us from Washington. Hi, Shirley. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to participate. Um, EIA has a special connection to the uh, original oil crisis, the topic that we're going to discuss. That's right. And, I mean, there are hordes of geeks like us out there who depend on EIA for a lot of data on the energy sector. Is it as glamorous working for the agency as it seems from the outside? Well, if you consider energy statistics and economic analysis glamorous, which is what I've spent my career doing, I guess uh, that's the case. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of our listeners out there do. So you're talking to the right people. All right. Well, Shirley is here to offer her insight on America's complicated energy landscape. It's been 40 years since the Arab oil embargo, our first major energy shock that led to this common goal of making the country more energy secure and thinking about investing in new domestic technologies. And and so those mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we'll ask whether the U.S. is better off four decades later. Then, California just passed a 1.3 gigawatt energy storage mandate. We'll look at whether it's a boon to the budding storage industry or a target that's too big to meet. And in our last segment, we'll look at Arizona Public Service's financial ties to an anti-solar campaign. Finally, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. All right, let's get into it. In October of 1973, oil-producing Arab countries, angry about the U.S. involvement in the war between Israel and Egypt, cut off oil exports to America and other countries. Uh, Price spikes, gas lines, and economic hardship ensued sparking the modern political movement around energy security. So debating energy security is almost as tedious as debating economics. Forty years on, there's still a lot of dispute about whether or not we are more or less secure um, and and a lot of dispute about what our energy landscape really means. So Shirley Neff is going to help walk us through some of the uh, the arguments around this and what's really happening in the U.S. So Shirley, I'm going to skip 
the nuance here and kind of get straight to the point. Um, a lot has changed in the last four decades, particularly the economics of renewables and the surge in unconventional fossil fuels. Um, how, what have we learned from that first oil crisis and how different is the energy landscape today versus in the early 70s? Well, there are a couple of important things to understand about uh, the market in the 1970s versus today. The oil market was much more company to company, and I'm oversimplifying here. Today, it's become more of a transparent commodity market, with prices clearly reflected on exchanges in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. Another is we have a lot more information about what is going on, not just in oil markets, but throughout the energy sector as a whole. When this uh, embargo started, we in the United States did not have a lot of information about what was actually going on in oil markets, uh, either on the production side or on the consumption side. There were some other factors in the United States that had to do with uh, natural gas prices and shortages and and things in the electric sector that also uh, forced uh, policymakers to recognize that we needed to just have a lot more information. And in part, the creation of EIA and that availability of information and, as you mentioned, the recognition that we needed to think about how we were using energy has led to dramatic changes in technology. Um, R&D certainly is, is one factor, but also policies that have led to the deployment of a lot of different technologies. And one thing that's really changed that a lot of people didn't foresee five, six, seven years ago is this dramatic increase in unconventional fossil fuels. Um, we are now nipping at the heels of Saudi Arabia in terms of the world's largest liquid fuels producer, um, but we still import a lot of oil as well. So when we look at that, a lot of folks in the political sphere say that America is far less uh, dependent on foreign sources of oil, that the domestic uh, oil and gas boom is making us more secure. I mean, can we say whether that massive change that we've seen over the last five years in particular has changed the security of the country? Um, rather than focus on security, what we tend to do now is think about what it means that the U.S. is becoming more self-sufficient. So you mentioned that we're you know, close to producing as much as Saudi Arabia as far as uh, petroleum, but when you add together natural gas and petroleum, we are going to be the largest producer in the world. So that creates a lot of optionality, if you will, uh, for the, um, the U.S. energy economy, especially in the transportation sector. And in fact, we're starting to see finally some significant opportunities for diversity away from just petroleum in the transportation sector. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is that at the end of the Department of Energy was really created out of the Arab oil crisis so that we would have the tools necessary to protect ourselves from another sort of incident like the Arab oil crisis. Today, we're not suffering from a lack of oil, but we are suffering from an enormous uh, lack of affordable oil, given that oil prices are at $105 a barrel and a lot of the tight shale formations require oil prices to be pretty high to be profitable. I'm just trying to understand, do we actually have the technologies today to save ourselves from spending $500 billion extra per year on fuel like we're doing right now? Well, 
oil production and increases in oil production, both in the United States and, and globally, are a function both of technology and price. And you're right, the price of oil is dramatically higher now than it was even in real terms uh, not that long ago. The other side of this, though, is that the world market has grown. China, India, and a number of, of developing economies are demanding a lot more oil as well. So you have both of those factors going on. Um, but does that, as, does that, I'm just trying to figure out, does that mean there's nothing we can do except, you know, pray for a, an economic collapse in China? The market responds to scarcity. And as oil prices have gone up, and as we've even seen the fact that, that other economies are growing and starting to consume more oil, that there were reasons for us to take policy actions in the United States. And one of the things that we see and we've written about on the website and in our annual energy outlooks on a regular basis is the impact of these fuel economy standards on the light-duty vehicle sector. There have been several of them over recent years, and in fact one now that will be implemented in the coming years are having a dramatic impact on U.S. Uh, petroleum demand. We're also starting to see that some of the heavy-duty vehicle sector, um, especially railroads, are thinking about converting to natural gas. So we're seeing a number of things happen as people adapt to prices. Prices are the easiest signal, the best signal that we have in a market to know whether we want to continue using something or whether we want to find an alternative. And we see the same thing in the electricity sector. One thing a lot of people don't realize is back in 1973-74, we were using one and a half million barrels a day in electricity generation in the United States. Yeah, it represents about 15% of electricity generation, right? Yes. And yeah, I would we're using love... very little today. Yeah, I would love to talk a little bit about the the sort of the electric side of things and and ask you about energy efficiency because we've talked a little bit about tr transportation efficiency um but energy efficiency and the energy of intensity um the the energy use per unit of GDP um is less than half of what it was 40 years ago. So there have been tremendous strides in energy efficiency and I'd love for you to address that a little bit as well. Yes, energy efficiency is something that um, is remarkable pretty much across the entire energy sector on the, on the demand side as well as the supply side. We see that uh, U.S. homes are now using, they're 30% larger, but are consuming about as much energy as in the past. A number of areas where consumers have a lot more plug load, if you will, all these new computers and DVRs and all sorts of technologies that people are plugging in have been added to consumers' usage without increasing the amount of electricity consumption due to efficiency across all, all appliances. So that's been a big impact. We see the same thing happening in, happening in commercial buildings and in the industrial sector. So I have a question about energy intensity. And a lot of people point out the limitations of talking about energy intensity uh, per unit of GDP because it doesn't necessarily factor in the movement of manufacturing, for example, overseas. And so because we've seen this uh, change in the manufacturing landscape in the U.S. and this shift to developing countries – a lot of our emissions have fallen and our energy intensity has fallen as a result. But it's not necessarily that those emissions are going away 
or that, that that energy is not being used, it's going over to other countries. How do you factor that into your analysis? Um, I think that's just such a big factor to keep in mind in that the U.S. has made important strides, but we have such a different economic landscape here than in the 1970s that that, that plays a very important factor in this as well. That's a factor. There's no question about that. We do track energy consumption in other countries. However, one of the challenges is that the data is not very good. If you look at the developed economies that are members of the OECD, like the United States, we've all these countries have put in place sophisticated energy tracking systems since the oil crisis of the 70s. Others have not. So it is a bit of a challenge trying to understand what the what the implications are from that standpoint. So let's take your EIA hat off and just t- looking at your decades of experience covering this industry, analyzing what's happening, have we truly learned from history? As an energy economist, I would have to say that the most important thing, we have much more transparency as to what's going on in the energy sector, both from the production and the consumption side. It also unleashed an incredible amount of creativity in the form of research and development, as well as um, you know, looking at developing new systems. There were solar panels installed on the White House by the end of the 70s. And, you know, look at where we've come from there. I mean, we've, we've had some ups and downs in investment and in deployment of different technologies. But again, going back to the fact that we are now on a path where we're increasing our own production, but also decreasing our own demand. I mean, that's a dramatic change when it comes to oil. We're also seeing changes in the electricity sector where new technology that are driving actual productivity in the use of energy are having a big impact. And I think what happened in the 70s, although I was just a child then, is that it forced (laughs) people to start thinking that this is something we really ought to focus on. And the United States, both from research and development funded through the Department of Energy and just the creativity and ingenuity of companies and researchers, have really led the uh, the world in in enabling new technologies. Uh, I think that's fair to say across the entire renewable suite. Well, Shirley Neff, uh, Senior Advisor at the Energy Information Administration, we appreciate you coming on and informing the discussion. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Let's go on to topic number two, California's new energy storage mandate. I think we can all agree that this is a pretty big deal. Last week, the California Public Utilities Commission approved a target for just over 1.3 gigawatts of storage for the three big investor-owned utilities there. A really surprising piece from this, the utilities can't own more than half of the storage put in place. Uh, That was originally proposed, and it looks like that is going to go through. So that means a lot more opportunities for independent service providers and uh, customer-owned storage. Catherine, our resident uh, storage champion, how significant is this development? Oh, this puts me in a happy place. Um, So full disclosure, in addition to my role at 38 North Solutions, I'm the policy director for the Electricity Storage Association. So I work on energy storage all the time. And certainly ESA did a lot to support the folks in California, the um, 
California Energy Storage Alliance was really taking a lead as a sort of a, a coalition of companies to get AB 2514 passed that then looked at, you know, should we do targets? You know, how would we go about doing that? This is huge. And honestly, the 50 percent is, in, in my mind, not a huge issue. And in, 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 in fact, um, is going to be really helpful. The co- companies like AES Energy Storage, Nextera, Duke Energy, all these folks are major developers that are developing energy storage all over the world. And those folks are going to be able to have a big place in this mix, not to mention the folks like Solar City and others who are doing sort of the third party financing where they're doing solar rooftop and energy storage systems. So those are also going to play a big role in this. I was surprised to learn that California has four and a half gigawatts of energy storage already. And a lot of that's pumped hydro, I believe. And pumped hydro, large pumped hydro, will be uh, exempt from this target. So there's significant experience with storage, albeit a technology that is not part of this particular target. Uh, so, So will that be a challenge, given that a lot of these storage technologies are still pretty nascent compared to the technologies that we utilize today? No, those technologies that are that have been operating on the grid, and right now they're over 60 megawatts operating a PJM, these are advanced storage technologies, and, and they're operating 24-7, 365 days a year, and they're always available to the grid. And there's o- over 150 megawatts just in the PJM queue. Uh, I don't think that technology is an issue. I think policy, you set the policies right, and technology is going to follow, and it's going to be able to scale. Now, I don't know if you saw Navigant just did a study that um, they say that by 2023, there will be $10.3 billion worth of storage, 21.8 gigawatts in the next 10 years. And that's advanced storage. Um, There's only much more of that when you factor in the large pumped hydro. Um, But this is mostly for wind and solar integration. And certainly in California, the policy drivers for both renewables and reduction in greenhouse gas emissions make storage just a key component to enabling them to meet those policy goals. Yeah, there's this famous chart, the duck chart from uh, the California Independent System Operator that shows the mismatch uh, between supply and demand in the evening hours when solar generation falls off and uh, people in their homes start turning on their air conditioners and lighting and so forth when they get home. So that storage issue is going to be key. And, And interestingly, this ruling creates a few different classes of storage one of which is on the customer side. And Jigger, you mentioned last week that you were making an investment in this storage company, STEM, which deploys uh, storage to um, reduce demand charges at customer sites. Uh, the announcement officially went out today. So tell me a little bit about how that factors into what's happening in California. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple things. One is I think this 50-50 ownership piece happened because uh, the Public Service Commission was convinced to do this on the um, FIT-RAM program and found that the private sector could actually own solar about 25% cheaper than the utility could. So my sense is they're testing the utility here again to see whether they can actually come in at lower costs than the private sector. But this investment we made with STEM, it's a fund, and so we're investing in the projects themselves, not in the company. And we're getting a current return from the savings that the uh, commercial building owners are you know, doing a shared savings contract with. So I'm pretty excited about this. And I, you know, at the, I'm at the solar show today, and uh, uh, Solar City, Sun Edison, um, Solar Grid Storage, a bunch of other folks are now announcing that they're going to have standard so, uh, storage offerings, and they're actually getting 
considerable amount of consumer uptake with residential battery backup uh, for solar. So I think storage is uh, hip and cool and going to do just fine in terms of meeting this total goal by 2020. So is storage a big piece of what people are talking about at SPI? I think it's it, it's the big piece around the new stuff. Um, yeah. I think people are saying that that's sort of the new interesting thing that consumers are asking for, um, particularly in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. Catherine, you mentioned this policy piece being crucial. So they passed the mandate, but now they actually need to put the regulatory pieces in place for this. Um, what are some of the pieces we should be looking out for so that this can be properly integrated and cost effective? Well, we want to make sure that you capture all of the different values that storage provides. Storage is a little different from traditional generation in that it can serve a lot of different uses. It has characteristics that overlap with generation, transmission, distribution. It can be a load. It can be a resource. You know, it does all kinds of things. And in fact, when you calculate um, ability to provide capacity, it, it doubles the capacity of a, of a traditional unit because it both absorbs and puts out energy. So it, it actually has twice the amount of energy. So the nameplate capacity might be, you know, 50 megawatts, but you actually get 100 because the mileage is such that you can go up or down and follow the load curve. One of the things I think we need to keep in mind with storage is that it doesn't just help renewables. And, we you know, we've seen it really does enhance the value of solar, which is absolutely terrific. And that's a, that's a, going to be a big play for these guys, but it also actually helps fossil as well. It it allows um, natural gas generators to be to raise their capacity factor, be used much more efficiently. So we're not just building a bunch of really inefficient, dirty peaker plants, but we're, we're actually using what we already have out there much more efficiently. So I think what this is going to do is allow us to look. At you know, as, as California is sort of a, a test bed to, of a policy of, and, and a bunch of overlapping policies to try to figure out how is this all going to work together. And, and I actually think storage is going to help stitch all of those together. Catherine, if I ask you the question a different way, I'm just trying to understand there's all of these value propositions from battery storage from you know, time shifting to, um, to just voltage regulation and all the frequency markets, et cetera. I'm just curious, what happens if the utility companies choose not to fully utilize the battery storage technologies in the same way that they have chosen to fully not fully utilize the smart grid infrastructure um, and instead choose to like keep some of their really expensive, dirty peaker plants running just because of inertia. Well, with this mandate, I mean, they have to procure a certain level of storage. So why wouldn't they use these assets, Jigger? Well, they haven't used the smart grid stuff. Look, Constellation and made huge, huge promises to the state of Maryland on what their savings would be based on rolling out smart meters. I don't know if you remember, but Maryland Public Service Commission rejected the initial smart grid sort of um, filing. And then after Constellation made all these promises, then they came back in and actually approved it. And Maryland hasn't even come close to meeting any of the residential savings targets. I don't see any penalties on Constellation for it. Yeah, but smart grid is different. Smart grid is like, it's so much harder to define. It's like a bunch of different things that you can use different ways. It's, it's, it's like a virtual asset almost rather than a real asset. I, I know I'm going to get beat up over this one, but I think energy storage, you know, it's actually a real generation asset and it's, it's more, it's, I think it's easier in that respect to be able to say, this is a permanent asset. It's, it's going to be able to provide you what you need 24 seven um, and, you know, be able to quantify that a lot better. And so then it would become much more transparent if you're not using it. 
And I think part of the problem with the smart grid deployment was that various utilities got a lot of funding through the stimulus package to deploy smart meters, but the services to do something with that data and create programs around the, the, the hardware deployment just weren't sophisticated. And now we're starting to see some of that sophistication. And I feel like the services end of the smart grid in terms of customer engagement are much different than grid scale energy storage and smoothing out uh, peak demand. Yeah, I think honestly with the smart grid stuff at the time, it was a bit of a solution in lo- looking for a problem. Absolutely. And now we have, a, we have a problem and there are some solutions. And one of those is energy storage. So let's move to Arizona. We moved to the battle lines of the net metering war in our last topic. And it turns out that all is not quiet on the southwestern front. That is where Arizona's biggest utility, Arizona Public Service, admitted this week it had secretly sent money to two political organizations that produced anti-solar ads. One of the ads from earlier this year attempted to connect installers Solar City and Sunrun to the bankrupt solar manufacturer Solyndra. The ad implies executives at those two firms are making shady business deals at the expense of Arizona ratepayers. So in July, APS dodged the question from reporters, including Green Tech Media, about its involvement with the firms. But it has finally admitted to sending money. And interestingly, uh, this is how an APS spokesman responded when the report finally broke. Quote, we are in a political battle. We didn't ask for it, but we are not going to lie down and let our heads get kicked in. We are obligated to fight. It is irresponsible to our customers not to fight back. End quote. (laughs) Holy smokes. Uh, If that doesn't show you a look into the soul of APS, I don't know what does. So this is the latest and possibly the most explosive grenade to be thrown over net metering yet. Jigger, you're known to throw some grenades yourself. Uh, What is the reaction to this news? It's awesome. I mean, this is how 90% of all the electric utility companies in the U.S. actually feel. And it's great to actually have a real battle on the battlefield. So now APS has finally shown their colors and said, we do not support the people of Arizona. We don't support the 90% plus approval ratings for solar. We don't approve of the political process that's been used to actually push solar policy. We are now going to fight solar tooth and nail. And now the solar industry has the right and the ability to defend itself. And we're going to see who wins this political battle. This is what I've been saying all along. This is not an engineering battle. It never has been. The utility can do things that are nonsensical all the time. And, you know, whether we actually save money, like Greg Bernofsky, who's here representing APS, has admitted freely that we actually save transmission distribution charges now on solar, but he refuses to give us any credit for it in their analysis. So I don't think this is an economic analysis. This is politics, plain and simple. Do the people win or does APS win? So are you getting any sense for how this is playing out at SPI? Are people talking about this? The story broke this week, and in the solar industry, it's kind of a big deal. But I really haven't heard much coming out of Arizona that people are up in arms about this. And the question is, if this is a a win for the solar industry, in your opinion, is it truly a win if people aren't really paying that much attention to it? to it. I mean, we're in our own little solar bubble here. Uh, We are watching these fights all the time, but I expected a little bit more reaction coming out of Arizona on this. Oh, I don't think this is ever going to be a mainstream issue. I mean, I mean, we live in the weeds, right? No one cares about (laughs) how their electricity gets formed as long as their lights turn on. So, but I do think that the energy in Arizona is pretty high. I mean, we've been 
reliably able to deliver 300, 500, 1,000 people to these meetings in Arizona to actually testify against what Arizona Public Service is doing. You've got Barry Goldwater's I think a grandson, I think, that's leading the charge. And so I think we actually have really good energy on the ground. And when you talk to the SPI folks, the big raging debate here in um, SPI, as you know, SPI is run by, the conference is run by SIA and SIPA. And SIPA basically is saying, here's the negotiated position that we want to start our negotiations from, where Arizona Public Service is all the way on the right wing. And there's a lot of folks at SIA that are saying, actually, we should be all the way on the left wing so that we can negotiate a deal in the middle and not negotiate a deal towards APS, uh, APS's side of the um, of the ledger. And so I think a lot of folks at SBI are saying our negotiating position should be no changes at all, net meter freely. We're not going to accept any extra charges. You're not going to tax um, our customers. And that's exactly what Solar Advocates did in California. And we now have an open process for deciding the future of net metering. And the cap looks like it will be lifted. So those tactics definitely worked for the solar industry in in California. Um, I read that quote earlier because I think it shows exactly how APS feels about this debate. They said that we're not going to let our heads get kicked in. We are in a political battle and obligated to fight. I mean, those are very powerful words, public words from a spokesman. And I'm wondering, Catherine, if when you talk to utilities, and and I'll turn it over to you as well, Jigger, if you believe that while a lot of utilities, including APS, say, of course we support solar, we, we, you know, it's the future of energy, uh, but in private, they kind of bear their souls a little bit more and are much more skeptical or even in a fighting mood. Do you see that amongst utilities or get a sense that that is happening? Well, most of the utilities I work with and system operators, um, the folks I'm working with are the people who are deploying the disruptive technologies. And those folks are not the executives that make the big decisions about, you know, are we going to go after the state corporation commission? These are the folks that are actually trying to deploy technologies and figure out how they operate and how they can, you know, what the interaction is and what kinds of standards do we need to develop. So they're the folks in the technology weeds. What we're talking about right here is not about that, as Jigger said. This is about politics. And this is about these guys giving huge amounts of money to C4s where where the where there's no transparency and there's no um, need to disclose who actually donates to these groups like 60 plus, which is like the super conservative version of AARP, Prosper, which is a another C4 that actually bought Twitter bots to to show that it's being followed by all these people on Twitter where they're not real people. Um, That's the political side where if you look at what's really going on on the ground and the Center for American Progress just released a study where they looked at California, Arizona, New Jersey and showed that mostly it's middle class people who are purchasing and installing solar. And in Arizona, 80% of the solar installations are middle class. Only 13% are upper class. There's this whole like, oh, no, it's only going to rich people. It's that's not true. About seven and a half percent going to the poorer folks or the folks with lower income. But what it is, is it tracks. It actually tracks. That's how many lower income, middle income and higher income people are in Arizona. That's how it breaks out. And that's how solar is being adopted, which means everybody's adopting it. It's got a similar distribution across um, salary range. And I just feel like there's this disingenuous argument that somehow this the solar credits are unfair when everybody is, in fact, benefiting. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about PG&E, for instance, who 
you know, j largely has been, I think, supportive of these things over the years. I mean, they spent $50 million to try to pass a ballot initiative to, you know, destroy the economics of DG. So, I mean, these guys have actually shown their colors on the outside. And, and I'll just take another quick position against secrecy. So the public generally likes disclosure, and that's why this funding by APS looks shady, because they were denying it in public, but giving money to this C4 in private. Um, but if we look at the other side of the coin, you know, we all agree that solar is good, but secrecy sucks. And early on, the solar coalition called Tusk, that was fighting APS, didn't disclose the solar companies involved in this. And eventually they did disclose that information. But I think it's really important to remember that the solar industry can't hide behind secrecy either. Um, it's not the level of APS secretly funding ads, slamming the solar industry, and then denying it in public. But if companies are willing to fight the fight and say that we need more renewables, they need to lay it on the table and be open about what they're doing. And, you know, if they believe in what they're fighting for, they shouldn't do it with tactics um, that potentially mar their cause as well. So uh, I think that is that's my warning for the day. Take it for what it's worth. But the solar industry itself can't get bogged down in these tactics as well as this fight starts to heat up. All right. Well, let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they may not know. Catherine Hamilton, what do you have for us? Oh, this is actually something that happened in Chicago where, where Jigger is right now. This week, the Shed Aquarium in Chicago, and that is the Shed Aquarium is the number one attended aquarium in the country. They just installed over 900 PV panels. It's 265 kW. It's the largest installation, uh, a cultural inst institution in the state. And they are aiming to cut their energy use by 50% by 2020, which will be the largest clean energy cultural institution in the entire nation. And this is just great. It's a great public-private partnership. Um, it says a lot that they could do it in Chicago and especially at an aquarium that uses a vast amount of energy to heat and pump and move everything in it. Cool story. Jigger, how about you? Tell us something we don't know. So I was reading a fascinating article by a guy named Stephen Lacey on Green Tech Media called <laughs> Under Threat, Germany's second biggest utility says it will create a new prosumer business model. And I read the article, and first of all, it's fascinating, so everyone should read it. Um, but what it really outlines is exactly what we need the utility companies in the U.S. to do, to really say, look, we should not be at odds with what our customers want to buy. We should actually be figuring out how to help our customers buy those goods and services, while at the same time providing reliable power for everybody. And I just think the fact that RWE got here, it was because they were – totally beat up, put into a corner, and then left to die. And this is what they came up with. And so I think that's the model we're going to have to do in the U.S. This notion that we're going to, like, you know, work with people um, in a collaborative fashion, they're going to come to their senses, I don't think is going to work. So I knew you were going to mention that story, Jigger, or I knew someone was going to mention that story. And I actually want to talk about that in a future episode. So I avoided that RWE story, and I'm moving into politics. So... Um, the GOP's effort to slam Democrats for the war on coal is not really working. Here in the Mid-Atlantic region, people are paying close attention to the Virginia's governor race where Democrat Terry McAuliffe is leading Republican Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli. 
And in Virginia and other surrounding coal states like Pennsylvania and West Virginia, you'd think that this war on coal messaging from Republicans would be pretty effective, particularly in rural areas. And yes, in states where coal is important, people are pretty receptive to the messaging. And you've seen some small political movements build around that. But as it turns out in the Virginia governor's race, Republican Cuccinelli can't even capture 50 percent of support in polls in rural areas. So there are a lot of factors at work, but it suggests that coal, even in coal dominant regions, only plays one piece in the decision of voters. And the, the Washington Post had this great article on that on those factors this week. And and this played out in the 2012 presidential election as well. So Romney and the GOP hit the war on coal messaging very hard. But in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Virginia, states that have big coal industries, Romney lost. And that's playing out once again in the Virginia's governor's race. And I think it's kind of interesting to see this disconnect between the messaging and the reality. Yeah, Stephen, the thing is, I honestly think that, um, you know, the the heavily urban areas in Virginia are going to carry the race. Um, uh, My family is deeply embedded in every part of Virginia, and I have a brother who lives in Appalachia um, down in coal country, and they said that every sign up is for Cuccinelli. So I don't know. I don't completely buy uh, that those folks have been turned yet. Definitely. I mean, you never know until people actually cast their votes, but the polls are not looking great for Cuccinelli, uh, considering that we're approaching the election and think that he'd have a lot more support than, you know, roughly half. People just don't like both candidates. (laughs) That's the problem. I think that's right. And I think it has a lot more to do than just coal. It had to do with the government shutdown really hurt Cuccinelli because, you know, a huge amount of folks in Virginia work for the government. Yeah. And actually, Terry McAuliffe came out in support of EPA regulations of coal plants, and that has not uh, hurt him too much in the polls. So, look, I know that coal is one factor among so many issues, but McAuliffe is not getting his butt kicked on these issues like you think he might. And and Cuccinelli's not getting the boost like you think he might. Yeah. And if you read the polls, people also really like EPA. They like someone who's looking out for their air and water and health. All right. Well, that marks the end of the show. For links to the stories we discussed on the podcast, check out greentechmedia.com. You can subscribe to this show through SoundCloud, through iTunes, or our RSS feed, and integrate that in any player of your choice. And if you're on iTunes, don't forget to write us a review and rate us. If you like the show, help spread the word. Send a link to a colleague. Tweet us out. Share us on your other social networks. And remember that we're going to have our first live show in Washington, D.C. at the MDVCS Solar Focus event. More information on that is at mdvc.org slash solarfocus2013. We'll also have a link to it on the podcast page. If you've got any questions or comments on the podcast, please send them my way. We really want to hear from people. We've been getting some good reaction to the show, and we want to hear what you want, to talk, what you want us to talk about and, um, and the format and everything that's on your mind. My email is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. Well, that does it. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Jigger Shah, safe travels back to the East Coast. Thanks for joining us on the show floor at SPI. Thanks. Catherine Hamilton, good talking to you. Have an awesome weekend. Thanks so much. And I would just recommend that everybody go on the EIA website and subscribe so that you can get information delivered to your email inbox every day. I have a feeling that almost all of our listeners get that already. 
<laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All energy wonks out there love those emails, I, my, myself included. Well, thanks very much with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next week.